I produced my first concert at the San Anselmo Playhouse in 1979. It was the first in a series of events that has lasted 40 years. I have produced more than 300 events and participated in many hundreds more as a speaker and participant. As the producer of this many events, I have an internal map of what to do to make an event successful, the steps to create and manage the logistics of an event, and how to promote that event. All Day DevOps, a live online conference I co-founded with Derek Weeks, has over 30,000 registrations yearly. This type of involvement gives me a unique perspective into why an event is successful. In the past few years, I've been sketching out a how-to manual on producing successful events. When the book, Building Internal Conferences, came across my radar, my first thought was, good, something I won't have to do. After looking through the book, I called authors Matthew Skelton and Victoria Morgan Smith to trade stories on tips and tricks for managing successful events. You might ask yourself at this point, why is this being covered on a tech podcast? With so much to choose from when it comes to webinars, meetups, user groups, and conferences, many companies are choosing to host their own event internally or participate as a supporter of a regional event. Industry conferences such as DevOps Days, DevSecOps Days, and SharePoint Saturday are run by local teams who are engaged in community development and education. This episode of the DevSecOps podcast focuses on helping you as an event organizer avoid the epic failures that would stop your event from being a success. This is Mark Miller, executive producer of the DevSecOps podcast and co-founder of All Day DevOps. Stay with us. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically monitor and remediate open source risk. Matthew, who is the audience for this? What problem did you see that you were trying to solve? The kind of people that we're aiming to reach with the book are people who have some kind of influence over learning and team interactions within their organization. They might have all sorts of job titles. They might be a developer. They might be a tester. They might be a, a dev manager. They might be uh, the CTO. So it's not specific uh, official job titles that we're really targeting. It, it's people who want to make a difference people who want to help their colleagues and other people within the organization learn and develop as technologists and people involved in building uh, software systems. It's people who, I guess, are passionate about making a difference in their organization. When you first started working on this, did you already have a background in this type of event? Or did you do research and said, you know what, we need to actually clarify more on what's happening here? What prompted it was we were at a conference uh, maybe three years ago. There was a, a sense from the people who were attending this Agile conference that a lot of talk about open communication and collaboration and empowered teams 
these sorts of movements, these culture changes seemed to be in early days for a lot of these organisations. I'd run within the FT internal conferences here and I'd seen the impact that it had on the culture, some of the things that it triggered, some of the conversations that it had enabled to start. It was that connection in my mind when I was there that prompted me to give a lightning talk to the people in the room. And there was a lot of really positive response to the suggestion that this was a way to enable them to open up some conversations and just kept people open to the idea of change and of talking about different ways of working and broadening the the audience and the participants within their organisation of those sorts of things. And so it was very much based on the experience of having run it at FT. Yeah, exactly. It was great to hear your talk at at that conference a few years ago. We met up afterwards and started chatting about this because I'd been running internal tech conferences at a company in London. We'd run a kind of half-day event every six months, and we'd run several of these. I think in total we ran about six or seven over the course of uh, a few years. And so it was really great to hear Victoria talk about her experiences, which are obviously somewhat different from, from mine, but there were lots of similarities. So we thought it was worthwhile getting together. And actually, the first thing we did is to write an article that was published in the news website InfoQ. And then kind of more recently, we just realized, well, actually, there is still no book that covers all of this, uh, all of these topics. And we thought, well, we've written the first article that covers all, all of these things. Why don't we write the first book uh, on internal tech conferences? So that's what we've done. As I was looking at this, I couldn't help but relate it back to all day DevOps with our viewing parties. You've been part of that conference, Matthew, where we have 130 to 150 viewing parties around the world. It seems like the book is applicable for even that. I think that's a really interesting point. So it's not something we specifically address in the book exactly, but I think it's something I'd like to explore. There's certainly a lot of a lot of the advice and patterns that we have in the book for running an internal tech conference would absolutely apply to one of the all-day DevOps viewing parties because it's about how the context for getting people together. It's about uh, making sure you've got a code of conduct in place, making sure you do the communications well ahead of time. All of these kind of things still apply, even if you're not actually running your own, finding your own speakers exactly, if it's, if it's mostly about kind of um, watching stuff on the screen or what have you. Some of the viewing parties for All Day DevOps have live speakers who come and do, do their talk on stage in that particular location. So it starts to feel a little bit like like a mini conference. So there's there's loads of really useful takeaways, I think, in, in the book for um, for events like a viewing party at All Day DevOps. One of the topics that you cover in depth in the book is why would someone want to run an internal tech conference? Yeah, because it takes an investment. People want to know what return they're going to get on that. So you need to think about each company is going to have their own motivation for it. So it might be simply that from an education perspective, there's knowledge within the organization that could be shared and it could end up being more cost effective than sending a handful of people to a conference or a training course and and having only them educated when actually you've got a bunch of people who have that knowledge and recognizing that you have that and elevating it and and, and making the most of that. Or it could be that there are general morale um, things involved. So showing people how valued they are how much that um, you want to invest in them and bring them together on a day like this because it, it does cost a little bit and people make it helps people feel special um, and a lot of it can be just about helping people recognize the people around them so staff retention has been an issue a thing that's come up as a general benefit 
that people have seen as a result of it. They they feel engaged in these events. They feel valued. It's made them look around and go, wow, well, I work with a bunch of really smart people and I never even realised it. That's a, a massive uh, re return that people can see from an event like this. But then you may also decide that actually what you want to do is bring in some external expertise for one aspect of it. The format of it really is driven by exactly what someone wants to get out. And it does vary slightly from different organizations. They need to know that before they actually do it. I think that a lot of companies are going to look at this from a business perspective and say, what's the ROI? What are the metrics I can use to determine whether this event was successful or not? Yeah, of course. And, and that's that's obviously a, um, as it should be. I think the way to see this is not just to look at it as a single event is to see it as a series of events that transforms the, helps to transform the culture of the organization over a period of time, over months and years. And actually one of the case studies we've got in the book, which Victoria wrote, because it's her experience, is that the uh, Financial Times, FT, media organization in London. Uh, I mean, I'll let her talk it through in, in a minute, but effectively the ROI was over the space of, of several years. And th that's also my experience at, at the, the place I was in London as well. The ROI was, not just from a single event, but was from the fact that you know that you're preparing for another event in the future. So the kind of conversations you have are richer, the kind of development that you can do with people. So if, if, if for example, a speaker misses a slot at one of the conferences, then they can, we can make sure they're prepared for the, for the following conference. There's a transformation over time for these kind of events. The extra inter-team communication that's, that builds up is a kind of richer kind of communication. We're discovering things more quickly. We're sharing things more effectively. We're building trust. So we're able to go more quickly and do things, maybe use technologies or use, use engineering patterns, which would not be possible if we had a lower trust culture. The short version of what I'm saying is don't just see this as an investment in a single event. Expect to uh, see an investment over several months and years in order to, to use this as a way to help transform the organizational culture into something that's higher performing and in, with increased trust and better team communication. We'll be right back after the break. Last month at the Chaos Engineering Summit, I had someone I had never met before come over and say hello. Hey, I heard your voice and I knew it was you. <laughs> Needless to say, that put a big smile on my face. This is Mark Miller, executive producer of the DevSecOps Days podcast. This is a broadcast for the practitioner who is interested in security as it relates to DevOps and DevSecOps. I want to continue to grow the community and can use your help. For frequent listeners, I'd like you to forward a link to this podcast to one other person in your network. Yep, that's right. Right now. While you're listening, just hit that little share button and we'll move on. For new listeners, welcome. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. If you don't like it, tell me. Not to sound too much like NPR. Well, I guess I do a little bit. Community support is what keeps this broadcast going. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And thanks for spreading the word. Victoria, one of the things that we as an industry have to deal with head on is the diversity issue. How can women step up and become one of the central players in this type of thing that you guys are talking about? How can they step up? Well, sometimes it just means a little bit of encouragement. 
hopefully in your organization you have people who are listening and looking out for people who've got a voice and and who want to use it and sometimes just encouraging them to do so can be enough to start to build a representative picture and that's one of the aspects we do encourage is to get some make sure that we do have some female people in our organization committee because that is part of, of illustrating to the rest of the organization and the department this is the the set of people who we value it includes everyone and that means this is that we want to include everyone in partaking in talking and speaking and taking part and more actively encouraging perhaps those who may feel a little bit a little bit shyer um, and encouraging them to to step forwards because that's the only way they gain the confidence and often that's what it comes down to I have produced dozens of events and it's one of the hardest things for me to do is to find the right words of encouragement to get women to even submit for the CFP much less get out and speak and I think it's one of the things that as an internal producer might be a great stepping stone to get more women out to speak at public events. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing to do for getting people speaking in our internal events is not to go and say, hey, you're a woman. <laughs> we need more of those. It's, it's to approach them and say, you've got something really interesting to say. People want to hear that. And so you're approaching people helping them to realize that they're, what they have to say is interesting, that people are interested to not feel shy. And once they find their voice and once they try it out internally and they find that it works and that people hear it and respond to it, that absolutely gives them the confidence to go on out. And we've got, we've got a number, a wide number of success stories on that front. That, uh, that again, that is what has formed our Speaker Guild, which is that, that mentoring and support for those who need help taking the first step but once they've taken that, we find that there's no holding them back. It's interesting when I was studying journalism and I used to be a reporter for a newspaper. One of the things that I learned right off the bat was if you want somebody to be afraid, you don't tell them, and he was so afraid. You make the reader afraid. And I'm always reminded of that analogy when I think about getting women to speak because I have the same type of idea that you do. We don't need to scream diversity from the rooftop. What we have to do is participate in diversity. That's what's going to make the difference. Yes, just make it the norm and, and make it visible, make it clear. And then people look at the people that you that who are there to represent you and realize that that includes them. And it just it, it flows much more naturally from there and it, it becomes an actual thing. As part of being the global organizer of DevSecOps Days, one of the things that we have to consider for an event is who is actually going to run the event? Who has stepped up and said, hey, I want to put one of these on in my region? How would a company determine who's the most appropriate person to handle one of these? I think it's really key that it isn't necessarily picking a senior manager and saying, go make this happen. For this sort of event, the by the people, for the people is really key. So the first one we ran at Financial Times was uh, a couple of team leaders were talking with the CTO about the knowledge that they'd gained from a conference. And he said, well, you know, you could make this happen. Why don't you go and make this happen? Because they had the interest 
and they were immediately engaged and they were excited by being trusted and empowered to do it. So they found other people who were equally motivated to see things made better. There are always some people who are motivated in sharing and knowledge sharing and trying to build community and who would like the opportunity to make something like this happen. I would suggest that empowering and giving the time and the trust to people within the department who have a certain amount of expertise in managing and organising some things to give them the opportunity to do it because they can galvanise other people and their peers and peers see that they are the ones who are making it happen. It, it makes them, it gives them more confidence in stepping forwards to get involved. One of the things that I like to highlight is things that don't work. Do you guys have examples of internal conferences that were try to be done that didn't work the way they were planned? We don't actually include any kind of counterexamples or anti-patterns exactly. Um, we've got a few in the case studies and, and in, in some of the sections, we've, we've got some examples of how things changed. So uh, organizations that, um, that ran things one year and then realized that based on feedback or based on just seeing how things went, that they needed to change some aspects of it. So for example, the company I was working for a few years ago where, where we where we were running these every six months, originally we did it as a, a full day event, but actually that made it quite difficult for many people to attend because they had to block out an entire day. These events in this particular company were open to everyone in the organization. So every, it was a smallish company at the time, it was about 300 people, but we invited everyone. So legal, HR, marketing, sales, as well as all the technologists. And the full day was difficult to, for people to schedule because it, it took an entire day out of the schedule. So we ended up switching it to a half day every six months. And that it's the same number of talks, obviously, but uh, instead of a, once a year, same number of talks, but actually the cadence and rhythm for that organization worked really well. And people were happy to block out half a day to do this thing. So I think the important thing there is is to for organizations to kind of reflect on what has worked well and what has not worked so well and be willing to adapt that uh, for their situation. Well, you just did a nice tap dance around my question there. <laughs> I'm looking for something that is completely hosed. I would agree. I, I, I think I haven't seen one that's completely hosed, but I can see that we've done things that with a well, that could have been better. And so we did it differently. We did it better. So you, you learn over a couple of events and hopefully people can learn by reading the case studies and examples in the books of going, oh, well, yeah, that's it. I, we need to not do that. We need to be careful of this. There's things that you learn over time that can be better and more effective. Things like giving your speakers enough time to prepare can mean that you don't have episodes like we had, which start with the speaker spending the first 10 or 15 minutes not able to connect and then speaking too fast so that they don't get heard. And people make mistakes if they don't give get even the time to practice and rehearse a thing. And, and because these are novice speakers, it's an example of a talk that went wrong in one of our events. But the whole event on balance was a successful event. There's always things that you just think, OK, next time, next time we'll do that. Next time. I think that's kind of interesting because right. it'd be interesting to work out what what it would take to produce an event that completely fails. So you just <laughs> mentioned something there, Victoria, which is don't kind of forget to effectively train the speaker or forget to give them time to prepare properly. So that'd be one thing. As a, as a bit of background, as aside from running uh, internal tech conferences, I, I've also run full public conferences as well. So I, uh, for five years, I was co-founding member of a pipeline conference focused on continuous delivery. So I've got some experience of running kind of big public conferences too. So I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head now, I haven't really, haven't, haven't written it down or anything, but um, how would you create a conference that completely failed, particularly an internal tech conference? You, 
you'd have it run by a member of senior staff who doesn't get the buy-in from colleagues and things. So, so people feel like they have to attend, but, but they feel grumpy. They feel uh, disappointed that they have to attend. They don't really want to be there. So no one's engaged. They're all looking at their phones or they're all checking their laptops, something like that. You pull in speakers who haven't had a chance to prepare properly. They don't know how to talk on stage. Speakers are, the slides are full of text and bullet points. The speakers turn their back on the audience and look at the screen basic things like this would make a kind of conference really flop. If you didn't have food, decent food, it would flop. If you didn't have a decent venue and decent audio video and decent Wi-Fi and uh, microphones, it would start to flop. If you didn't advertise it properly beforehand, that's going to help it not succeed. Effectively, so what we've got in the back of the book is, is a toolkit for running an internal tech conference. And I guess if you took the toolkit and kind of inverted it, so if you did all this, if you avoided doing all the stuff that the toolkit says, then you'd be a great way to create um, a conference that fails. I I don't recommend anyone doing that though. (laughs) Waste (laughs) of time. One of the things that you both brought up is the idea of speaker preparation. And I can confirm that with the first year of all day devops when we first started doing that we didn't have a quote quote green room set up for the speakers to prep them before we pushed them out onto the main stage online and we discovered simon maple came back to us and helped us talk through the second year and he said one of the things that he found most effective was to literally have a virtual green room set up so that you can check everything that you need to. Can you check the video, you check the audio, you check to make sure the slides are presenting before you move them over to the main stage on YouTube. And that has been extremely effective. Matthew, I think you were part of that process when you spoke. Yes, it was. It was really, really useful. It, It makes a big difference knowing that you've got all of that kind of stuff sorted out. So I think there's two two slightly separate things here. One is the kind of operational stuff on the day. So in the book, that's chapter three is, is running the conference and having people as part of the team checking things like microphones, like audiovisual, making sure that the, the video connectors are all in the right place, all that sort of stuff is incredibly important because you don't want to waste any time at all on the, on the changeover between talks. Very much so if, you, if you're if you an online conference like All Day DevOps, but if, you, if you've if got a, um, a physical element too, kind of in, in a particular venue, then you, you don't want people losing losing interest in what's going on. So you want the changes to be as smooth as possible. And that might mean using a single laptop for all presentations, or it might mean that you've been very, very specific and very clear about the requirements for laptops that are going to get plugged in by different speakers. You know, you must use HDMI or you must have slides at 16 by 9 format or whatever it it is you need to do to make all that stuff really smooth. So that's the kind of operational stuff on the day. Very important. There's another aspect about speaker, speaker preparation, which is also incredibly important, which is the preparation well before that. So the kind of mentoring and uh, sitting down with the speakers and going through their slides and actually maybe doing some practice sessions. Victoria, we've got a, a case study in, in the book, haven't we, from Klarna, who really called out the importance of developing their speakers many weeks in advance as part of what made their conferences successful. Yeah, they do. If they don't, if your speakers don't work out, then your conference doesn't work out. You completely rely on them to perform on the day. There's, adv- there's practice in advance, so practice sessions, 
even teaching that reminding them to breathe <laughs> when they're talking, the layout of the slides, anything like that on how to help them have the confidence they need on the day. Because you're not running this with seasoned speakers. It's, it's one of those things that's slightly different from an external conference, I guess, where you're a lot of the people talking might be people who do it all the time. And here you're looking to be inclusive. You want to elevate people who maybe who, who don't speak out very often they need as much support as they can get and as much mentoring as they as it's possible to offer them and a, a speakers guild has formed at the ft as a result where they're all offering practice sessions and and so on to each other a lot of mentoring and, and that's been a real a positive outcome that's come out of out of the sessions that we have even on the day itself so it's not just the mechanics of the sessions but having somebody there who can welcome the speakers and give them confidence boost before they go on the stage and then congratulate them when they come down. Just that feel good thing to make it a, a positive experience for them so that they can be willing and and eager to, to do more next time or inspire other people by saying, you know, well, that wasn't so bad after all. It's actually quite good. It's absolutely key. One of the minor things that I don't think people would think of is connectors to laptops and i run into this every single year i run the DevSecOps days at rsa in san francisco and singapore and apple in their infinite wisdom has different ways for different products that they put out to connect to the display unit and we have consistently had a problem with that have you guys run into connectivity problems as far as even hooking a laptop up to the projector yeah, I've seen that many times and I've run meetups and spoken at meetups and things where that's just wasted, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes at the beginning. And it's it's just not something which you want to deal with. So it's worth actually testing that stuff out. So go and find some people with different kind of laptops, find some people with a Windows laptop, find some people with a Mac, find someone who's got even a Linux laptop if, if you really want. And just make sure that different connectors and different cables kind of work. There are quite a lot of places that I've come across that like to rely on a kind of downloadable app that you use in order and connect, it connects to like the local Wi-Fi or something. And then that's the thing that, that projects your screen, but that just wastes an awful lot of time. So my advice for this thing is just keep it simple. Make sure it's it insist on say on a standard, on a physical standard cable like HDMI, have a set of dongles for different kinds of connectors ready and available. So that if someone turns up with a laptop, let's say their, their main laptop broke and they've had to use a spare, and, and it doesn't have the right connectors, you can just plug it in straight away. So you can, there's kind of multiple levels of preparation for making sure that you don't have those kind of operational problems. And also just building in time at the start of the day so that, if, you know, that there's 30 minutes or an hour, however long before the conference starts, where speakers can come to the room that's set up and test plugging in so that they've got an opportunity to deal with any last minute things that don't quite work. That might not be connectors, it might be their preference for showing speaker notes in parallel screens or not parallel screens and identifying those before the day really gets started just helps it go smoothly as well. I have to laugh as I'm reading one of your things here. It says, make speakers use a microphone. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting how, how many speakers think that a microphone is just because they've got a quiet voice. It tends to be newer speakers who who haven't who haven't really done it very often. But it's not a criticism if we ask you to use a microphone. It's not because your voice is too quiet. It's because we need to capture the sound for the audio recording for video, and also there are people who don't hear very well, and they're probably using a hearing loop, 
or some kind of uh, hearing aid which requires the electrical amplification from the microphone. There's also other things, kind of atmospheric things. So there might be, um, you know, some traffic that goes past the window or an airplane that goes overhead or whatever, something that a door opens and closes, something like this. And actually everyone in the room will benefit from having uh, some amplification um, of what the speaker is saying. Absolutely no exceptions. The speaker should use a microphone. Everyone wins. We've talked a lot about the speakers. Let's talk about the attendees a little bit. How do you recommend that people enhance the attendee experience? There's loads of things, really. And the first off is, is just to uh, let them know what's happening, create a, try and create a bit of buzz. And this is partly down to the people who organize it because they are peers of the other people who work. And if they inject a bit of energy and effort into promoting it, really, it widely so that people can find it really hard to not know what's going on, making sure that management have bought in and, and not enforced any other meetings on the day so that people are not just allowed but actively encouraged to invest in themselves for the day just helps to create the right atmosphere. There are mechanical things as well. So a bit like the microphones in case people you know need have hearing loops or anything like that, there may be other things that people need. So putting enough attention in at the beginning to ask attendees, is there anything that they need particular to feel that they can access what's going on well, whether it's ramps or whether it's live captioning or if they've got any needs like that. That all helps to just build an atmosphere that this is for everybody and everyone has the opportunity to make requests for anything that's special for them. The other part of it really is that comes down to the content. So when we talk about content that goes into the conference, this by the people, for the people element means that attendees should have had the opportunity to make their preferences or, or or have input into what type of content there is in there. So they should be able to feel that this is a thing that's been made for them. So already be engaged. This is something that they've um, requested, required. Um, it, it's got their needs in mind. There's also a few practical things that are really worth doing. And we, we cover these in, in the book, uh, making sure we've got some mechanism of feedback. So either have printed feedback forms, and that's some people prefer being able to write on a piece of paper. That's fine. Uh, you could use like a Survey Monkey online survey tool as well, but that tends not to be as engaging during the day. If people see that there's a feedback form there, they immediately feel like their involvement is being sought, even if actually they decide that the talks are all brilliant. Um, so it's important to make sure that they, you've got something that's, that's visibly seeking their feedback. Another another thing to try in that kind of space is what's called a real-time retrospective, which is a kind of team retrospective board that's put in a public place somewhere in, in, the, in the conference venue um, that allows attendees to give real-time feedback on what's going on. So was the, is the coffee good? Is the tea good? Uh, is the volume of the loudspeakers too loud or too quiet? All these kind of things which people might want to feedback on, and they can give feedback in, in basically real time. And then those feedback points can be addressed by people. So, you know, the, the air conditioning is too cold. Okay, well, let's fix it. Let's speak to the venue people. See, can they do anything about it? Actually, we've now fixed the air conditioning. And that can happen during the day. And that's a, re that's a, re a really great way to kind of enhance uh, the attendee experience because they really feel like they've, they've got a say about how they're feeling and their needs during the day. Many companies now have remote locations. It's a distributed workforce. How do you handle 
a main internal conference that needs to be distributed out to the rest of the company in remote locations? Sometimes it can vary how widely distributed it is, because if you, if you have one offshore location, then you can do really special things there to make it feel, to make, to include them. If you're still broadcasting out to them, you can still do things like give them catering, put posters up, make it in a central room where it's in one screen so they so that they're still sharing the experience together and they can they can they can mingle over it and feel like they've got the time out to receive the content in the same way as other attendees. If your equipment is set is good enough, if your if your network connectivity is good enough, then what can be even better is providing a, a way that they can contribute actual content, but that does get trickier. It may be that that's something that they can follow up with, but including them as much as possible by providing them with something special locally, giving them a, a, a chat channel, an open channel where they can easily contact people in your local office to, to let somebody know that either there's a problem with the connectivity or that they've got a question for the speaker that they would like somebody to you know, in the room to maybe ask for them or feedback they'd like someone to put on that real-time retro board if it's a physical board. Making sure that they've got some local representation is really key. So they, they're actually and actively being looked out for. One of the things that we found to be extremely well-received is to send swag boxes to those remote locations, send them the t-shirts for the event, send them some stickers. Even the littlest things are so appreciated from the remote locations. That's a really nice idea. We'll do that next time. Yeah, what, one of the things that we covered a little bit is, is swag and how that can sort of make the event feel like an event. Um, you don't need to spend too much money on it. A little logo and some branded stuff can, can really help to make it feel like a thing. Matthew, one of the things that I want to make sure that we covered is that you have published more than this book. I want to make sure people understand that you have opened up a publishing platform. That's right. The first book that I was involved with, which is going about several years now, I was the co-editor of a book called Build Quality In which is a collection of DevOps and continuous delivery experience reports from around the world. That's been selling really well since we published that via LeanPub back in uh, 2014. We've we've uh, sold nearly 450 copies. People have found it very useful. Over the last few years, I've realized that I've got an interest in writing myself. I've also got an interest in working with other people to get their ideas across as well. I've been involved with uh, setting up Conflux Books, the book we're talking about now, Internal Tech Conferences, is the first in this in this new series. There's a, a collection of books kind of focused on practices and activities that help to enhance and sustain software delivery at a kind of enterprise or, or interesting scale. Uh, so we've got books covering kind of software operability, testability, uh, business metrics, releasability, whiteboard sketches, even how to give a tech talk. So I'm, I'm actually currently pulling that together because I, I've, I run a, a training course around how to how to write a, a talk for, for a conference or a meetup. I've been pulling together a collection of these um, books focused on fairly fundamental, uh, either fundamental practices or kind of techniques and, and ways of doing things like running an internal tech conference, which really have a, a strong positive kind of force multiplying effect on uh, for for people in in organizations who who are building uh building software systems 
the fairly early stages with, with complex books, but so far the uh, the response has been good. It's been great to work with people like Victoria who got amazing ideas, great experience, and are often experts in, in their field or have got a very strong experience in a particular field. And it's it's a real privilege for me to be able to work with people and, and kind of turn that into something which then uh, ends up being a book, training course, other material like that. How would you encourage people to take the first step here? Obviously, the, f- the very first thing to do is buy the book and, and read it. <laughs> Beyond that, um, it's worthwhile attending some conferences. The minimum viable conference, if you like, could be a meetup group. There's loads of tech meetup groups all around the world. Go and find your nearest one. Go and see what they do. Go and ask yourself questions. Uh, do I like that? Is that a good thing? Was that speaker good? What made their talk good or what made their talk less good? Was the welcome nice? Was the was the microphone working? How was the food? How did it make me feel? That kind of thing. Get involved with other kind of events as well, like all-day DevOps, but also uh, physical conferences in, in one place. Get some experience about what actually happens. Ha- have a look at the, the kinds of uh, team members who are helping to run the conference. Go and have a look and see what they're doing. Get some ideas about uh, kind of what's involved. That's just from a practical point of view, how to get an idea of what will be involved in in running a tech conference. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically monitor and remediate open source risk. 